There's an island off the north coast of Germany called Heligoland. In 1994, off the northwestern coast of that island, a body was discovered, with injuries that suggested foul play. Wearing smart clothes and expensive shoes, he was given the name The Gentleman. But nearly 30 years later, he's still unidentified, and his killers have got away with murder. Welcome to the mysterious case of the Gentleman of Heligoland, one of Europe's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 12 On the Scent of the Gent In this episode there are quite a few things to update you on so we're going to get into this right from the get-go. Firstly there have been some updates on the Locate International website since we last spoke and I want to bring you up to date on those because there's been some interesting changes. Secondly I want to dig a little bit deeper into this issue with Australian lead cropping up in European bodies. I'll take you through in more detail that US case that causes me such concern. Thirdly, we, that's Joe, Ian and myself, have been busy doing some digging and some of it comes from way back before we finished season one. But we weren't ever in quite a position to tell you about it. We are now, and it involved a great deal of background work for Ian and Joe, piecing together the life of a certain individual. And in fact, there's two people we want to tell you about, two potential victims, and we'll come to those people shortly. So what is the official investigation saying at the moment? And this is via Locate International's page, which has been recently amended i think there are five key amendments and they're quite interesting firstly they identify the weights now as iron cobbler's feet which is correct this is picking up on the idea from our satra expert that these were used in the shoe repair industry not shoe manufacture that's good secondly they say forensic analysis shows that he spent time in australia or northern europe this is important remember in the german press release of only two weeks ago they were much much more certain they said with a high degree of certainty they're sure he came from australia now they're rowing back on that now and i suspect they're rowing back because of the australian lead issue in european petrol being recognized which means you can't be certain he came from australia because anyone in Europe was massively exposed to Australian lead. Thirdly, they accept that the tie, which was originally thought to be military or regimental or private school, in fact wasn't. It was just a style produced by Marks and Spencers for the general public, and that's correct. Fourthly, 
The codes on the tie mean it was produced between 1984 and 1990 and could have been sold in any country, including Canada, with this label. They specifically talk about Canada as being a possibility. In fact, the only country they mention in that part of it is the UK or Canada, which I find interesting. And fifthly, and this is new, they show the labels from the underpants. Now, the codes on those labels are shown, and that is also a Marks & Spencer's product, produced sometime between August 1992 and mid-1993, and for sale across all M&S stores, wherever they may be around the world. But for the first time, we see that label. So five changes, and five changes that mostly come from where we are in terms of the investigation. So it's pleasing to see that the investigation is moving more towards our line of thinking. I wanted to explain in a bit more detail about that case that concerns me about Australian lead in cold cases. It's from a report in the New York Times from 2012, but it concerns a case that goes way back to 1971. And what happened was this, a young woman's badly decomposed body was found floating in Lake Panasofsky in Florida, about a, an hour northeast of Tampa. There is no clue to her identity, and detectives spent thousands of hours in a futile attempt to determine who she was and who killed her, and they failed. And she was buried as a Jane Doe, as they say in the US. And unidentified victim and it took 15 years for the police to relook at that case and when they did the body was exhumed and of course forensic science had moved on in that time and using the latest forensic techniques they were able to determine that she was somewhere between 17 and 24 and was either white or native american they took the body to dr erin kimberly who took shavings of her tooth enamel and bones and asked a man called Dr. George Kamenov, a geochemist at the University of Florida, to analyze the chemical traces in those shavings for the presence of lead, carbon, and other elements, which he did. And his conclusions were startling. The young lady wasn't Native American. His evidence was that she grew up in Greece and much of that was based on the lead isotope analysis. All of us who grew up in the 1960s, 70s and 80s and 90s have lead in our bodies that shouldn't be there. And it gets there because lead in leaded petrol finds its way into everything we eat, everything we breathe and everything we ingest. It's in the air, it's in the dirt, it's in our food. But lead comes from different sources with different isotopic signatures. And the lead that Dr. Kamenov found in this poor girl's body was from Australia. Now, why does that mean she comes from Europe and ultimately Greece? Well, because European leaded petrol had exclusively Australian lead in it as an additive used to improve its efficiency. So the presence of Australian lead meant 
that she'd grown up in Europe or presumably Australia, but that's not mentioned. In Dr. Kamenov's words, the whole of Europe was contaminated with Australian lead. Now armed with that information that she was probably European, further analysis of oxygen isotopes in her teeth, he was able to identify Greece as the likely country she was raised in. In fact, a 70% probability she came from Greece. And it just so happened that there was a large Greek community in Tarpan Springs, just north of Tampa. Now that's all we know about that case. But the relevant point for us here is Dr. Kamenov's words. Europe was contaminated with Australian lead, which is why we are so dubious about the police's assumption of last week that they have a high degree of certainty this man grew up in Australia. It's possible, but in our opinion, just like Dr. Kamenov's opinion, it's much more likely he was from Europe particularly given where he is found. Now, there's a couple of people that we want to tell you about, potential victims, people who went missing around that time that we've become very interested in. I've been primarily looking at the first one. Ian and Joe have spent a lot of time on the second case, but they're both very interesting in their own ways. So get yourself a cup of tea, make yourself comfortable, and I'll begin. Many years ago, Ian and I used to play in a band. Nothing special, just fun, really. But when we're in studios or on stage, there's always a lot of equipment around. Speakers, amplifiers, monitors, PA systems. And there was one logo that became familiar to anyone playing in the 1980s and 1990s, a kind of a stylized M. It stood for Martin Audio, and Martin Audio, around that time, was a big brand, a business founded in 1971 by a guy called David Martin, an Australian sound engineer who moved to the UK and who went on to provide live amplification for many of the biggest bands in the 70s and 80s and 90s. He was a brilliant engineer. Maybe not the best businessman, but he sold his business in 1990 for around 1.5 million pounds. That's a lot of money 30 years ago. And he was 49 years of age. He could pretty much do what he wanted with his newfound wealth. Now, what on earth has this got to do with the gentleman of Heligoland? Well, at the end of 1992, something very strange happened to David Martin. He simply vanished, seemingly off the face of the earth. Now, I found this story about 10 days ago. I was searching in the newspaper archive when I had a spare moment. And I'm always thinking about new terms to search for that we haven't used before. And I used the term tycoon, a random word, but if you ever come across the word tycoon, it means someone who's normally very rich and something very bad has happened to them. And there are a number of interesting stories that come up and one in particular caught my eye about an Australian man who disappeared in the UK at the end of 1992. 
David Martin. And it started in January 1993. That was when people started to think something may have gone tragically wrong. And the title of that is Missing Tycoon Riddle. And it says, fears were growing today for a millionaire businessman who vanished from his luxury home on December the 30th. Detectives found a pool of blood in the garage where David Martin's BMW car should have been parked and stepped up their hunt after he failed to keep important business appointments. Mr Martin, aged 49, left his home in Knapp Hill near High Wycombe without money or clothing. And that was quickly followed by two more newspaper reports. The first one says, Body is not missing tycoon. And it reads, Police investigating the disappearance of the millionaire businessman David Martin were today examining the body of a man found with multiple injuries. But later they said it was not that of Mr Martin. The body was discovered in a lay-by near Chorley Wood, Hertfordshire. Detectives were treating that death as suspicious. Mr Martin, a 49-year-old Australian-born bachelor, vanished from his luxury £400,000 house in High Wycombe, Buckinghamshire, more than a week ago. Two officers investigating his disappearance were travelling to Hertfordshire. Police initially received a report of a road traffic accident on the A404 at Chorley Wood, but on arrival, officers found the dead man aged about 50 in a lay-by just off the main road. So that body very quickly was determined not to be David Martin. About a day later, there's another report. And this is titled, Missing Tycoon's Car Found in London After Tip-Off. Missing business tycoon David Martin's car was found yesterday in London. The grey e-registered BMW 735 was being subjected to extensive forensic tests, but police have said there's no link with the discovery of a body found earlier in Hertfordshire. Acting Detective Superintendent David Blair, leading the hunt for the 49-year-old millionaire, refused to divulge exactly where it was found or what the circumstances were. However, he did say that it was located following a call from a member of the public. Australian-born Mr Martin has not been seen since December the 29th, when he was reported missing from his home in Mosley Hill Farm near High Wycombe Books. The alarm was raised after a friend arrived at his luxury converted barn to find it unlocked and empty. The lights were on. There was a half-finished glass of wine in one room and police found traces of blood in the garage. Mr Blair said forensic tests were being carried out on the blood but it is possible it was the result of a simple accident as Mr Martin was working on vintage cars in the garage. The last person to see him was business associate Colin James who's been interviewed by the police. Investigations were also being targeted at aerodromes because of Mr Martin's interest in aeroplanes and helicopters. Mr Blair said rumours that Mr Martin had disappeared before had not been substantiated. He added, Mr Martin may have his own reasons for leaving home and our investigators are keeping an open mind as to his whereabouts. Albert Berkovicius, a business colleague, has flown from Australia to help police. The next record states, Missing Tycoon was killed by his partner, court told. Missing Tycoon, David Martin, whose body has never been found, was killed by a long-standing friend and business partner who he suspected of cheating him, a court was told yesterday. Colin James, 50, 
has been accused of murdering Australian-born millionaire Mr Martin on December the 29th last year. He was charged even though the 50-year-old Mr Martin's body has never been discovered. The prosecution case against James of Highwood Hill, North London, began to unfold during committal proceedings before a stipendiary magistrate at High Wycombe Books. Reporting restrictions were lifted at the defence's request. James has not yet entered a plea. The court heard from the prosecution that Mr Martin was killed in a garage workshop amongst priceless vintage cars and that the murderer had then tried to clear up the blood, leaving footprints behind. Mr Roger Coventry, prosecuting, said David Martin was Colin James's friend for something like 20 years. In the weeks and days leading up to the 29th of December, David Martin was gradually coming to the conclusion that he had been the victim of a breach of trust which had been perpetrated by Colin James. David Martin had reached the conclusion that he'd been defrauded ripped off to the tune of £200,000, Mr Coventry told stipendiary magistrate Mr Alec Ormrod. Referring to the alleged events of December 29th, Mr Coventry said that the two men had agreed to meet that day at Mr Martin's converted barn in Knapp Hill, High Wycombe, to discuss a business deal. Mr Martin telephoned his girlfriend Kate Turner and she agreed to call him back later that night but when she rang, there was no answer, and she drove from her home in Lincolnshire to find out what had happened. When she arrived to find Mr Martin's car missing, the house not properly locked, and the burglar alarm not on. She called James, who told her that Mr Martin had probably gone off on his own and will turn up, said Mr Coventry. A few days later, Miss Turner's son discovered blood spots in the garage, and the police were called in. Forensic experts discovered the blood and an extensive clear-up operation. There were shoe prints in the blood and a trail of prints leading to the toilet. Blood samples were taken from the father, brother and sister of Mr Martin in Perth, Western Australia. Mr Coventry said there was only one in one million chance that all the blood in the garage was not David Martin's. The markings in the blood were also quite distinctive. They come from a particular bowling shoe that has studs on it. Shoes that were taken from Colin James and by random damage that occurred to the shoe, the forensic scientist was able to match this to 13 specific prints on the garage door. He looked at the shoes, but there's no blood on them, but they smelt of detergent. Mr Martin came to Britain 20 years ago and soon established Martin's Audio, which he sold for £1.5 million in 1990. He and James started a business restoring helicopters. It was a gentleman's agreement. Nothing was ever written on paper. The prosecution claimed Mr Martin never got any money out of the business, leading to his loss of trust. The hearing continues. The outcome of that trial was that Colin James was found guilty of murder. One of the extremely rare cases in the UK of a successful murder prosecution conducted without a body ever being found. And Colin James was sentenced to life imprisonment for a crime with no body or no murder weapon. Now, I've no idea whether Colin James is guilty. There's been appeals. They've not found in Colin James's favour. But I am interested in the whereabouts of Mr Martin's body. Here we've got an Australian born man. So if the isotope work is correct, that definitely works. He's the right age. 
He's a well-to-do person. He may well have been wearing churchy shoes. This Australian goes missing in the UK at the right time. The car is left in London and as we know, the Thames, his tidal, flows out into the North Sea. So, he's a person of interest. But David Martin isn't the only person we're interested in. Ian had been sitting on a discovery for a few weeks now, which we now need to talk about. Last week, his investigation took another step forward in understanding the background of that man, and it made him even more relevant. So the best thing I can do was give Ian a call and talk through exactly what he and Joe had been working on. Hello, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ken. How are you? I'm not bad. Well, I'm keen to talk to you, actually, about what you, with a little bit of help from Joe, have been kind of unearthing, because I know it's pretty interesting, and I can't wait to get into that. But I've just been talking through the David Martin scenario, uh, which is a peculiar case in its own right, really. So, I mean, have you got any thoughts on David Martin? Because I know you've been following this pretty closely as well. I have, I have. Uh, at the moment, well, I've still got a question mark over height and we need to sort that out because in some of the photographs he looks really tall, in other photographs he doesn't look quite as tall. So, And obviously that has always been our, our guiding light. Yeah. But I find it quite a strange case that somebody's been prosecuted and is still in jail, as far as I know. Yeah. Because the evidence that he was convicted on seems quite slight and certainly not as conclusive as you would expect to get somebody put away when there isn't a body. There's also uh, stories later on um, of of other people knowing what happened to David Martin and not involving this Colin James chap at all, but they seem to have been disregarded. It's, it's very strange. It may be something that we need to come back to David Martin could well be the gentleman, and that's obviously our prime focus, and we've got to make sure that we we find out what his height was and things like that, because, you know, he probably was involved with some fairly murky things. And this was this was in the early 90s. You know, the Balkan War was going on, a lot of murky stuff going on. This man was into helicopters and spare parts for helicopters and things like that. There's a pretty murky black market in all that at that time i would imagine mm. so he was moving in some interesting circles i think of course the big thing for me for david for david martin is that he is somebody who jet setted around the world involving the music industry involving some huge bands mm. uh would think nothing of just heading off around the world to help somebody out in south america or australia apparently and therefore without finding a body Given that he'd sold that business uh, and was loaded, I'm not sure that you could be absolutely certain without the body that he didn't just go off himself. It looked like the sort of guy who would just disappear off. And of course, if he's done that, then he can't have been killed by Colin James, but mm-hmm. he might have been killed a year or two later on and, and ended up in the North Sea. Who knows? A lot depends on the a lot depends on the height, and we will get to we'll know that I think in the next week we're in mm. contact with people who knew him, and uh, it, that's the only way that we're going to actually get to the get to the bottom of that. But uh, yeah, I think you're right. What, whatever happens in relation to David Martin and his relevance to the gentleman of Heligoland, we will need to come back to this at some point 
Anyway, that's for that's for another day. So now I'm really keen to get into this. And there's a very specific reason why I'm keen to get into this, but I won't spoil it. But um, you and Joe have been working away like mad on something from before we finished the last season. But we weren't Absolutely. really in a position to go any further with it. But now we are. So let's let's just talk about this work you've been doing and this individual that you've unearthed. Well, I, I mean, we, we, we looked back three years around the world for missing persons. That was the first our first step yeah uh, and we found various missing persons which we've investigated and people have heard of uh, none of whom have proved to be the gentleman and therefore towards the end of season one when joe and yourself were hunting who might have fallen off a bridge somewhere etc etc i went back further to look for missing people who could have who could have done a Lord Lucan, if you like, and gone missing and lived somewhere else for a period of time before they end up uh, in the North Sea in in ninety four. Um, I still had a Canadian tie in in my head, so I certainly was looking at uh, at Canada, and I wanted to push on this, but that's when we had to hold because there was this huge. Um, revelation that was about to be made and that revelation would actually exclude this guy unless we accept having a lead isotope analysis doesn't preclude anybody who was from europe being the gentleman well i think that's the position we have to take now i think we have to think start thinking about actually australian lead doesn't mean australian it means it may well still mean European. Uh, well, and I'm fascinated by the fact that on Locate International's update, having been so sure that this fellow was born and raised in Australia, Locate International say Australia and or Northern Europe. Yeah, they're rowing uh, back quick on that, aren't they? Appearing after appearing after our our update a fortnight ago, which is odd. Anyway, I did find a chap in. Canada's missing, who went missing on April the 26th, 1979. Okay. okay. The reason he leapt out at me yeah. is that uh, he's the right age, obviously, working yeah. my way back on that. This chap was um, born in 1950, so that would have made him 29 when he went missing, but it would have made him... 44? 44 when he was in the in the sea, if it was him that was in the sea. Yeah. yeah. Now, this chap is a chap called David Manfred Kruger. Right. He had been running a business with somebody else, but that business had got into financial difficulties. His business partner reports seeing him at the end of April, April 26th, 1979, and then reports him missing on May the 2nd, 1979, and he's never heard or seen from him since. All of listeners, and now at this point, I would imagine, going to be saying, yeah, but loads of people go missing around the world. Why particularly is this guy of interest here? Apart from being the right age, apart from being a male, white, European type, he's six foot five. Ooh. And... He's 80, 81 kilos. Which is exactly right on both, isn't it? We know these guys are few and far between. And one who goes missing 
I thought deserved some further investigation and was quite frustrated really that we got to the end of season one without bringing him out. And then we got slightly overtaken by events. But actually, the more we've dug into this chap, which I'll go into, um, the nicer the nicer he fits. Yeah, the um, more we like him, don't we? But before I dive into what we've just found recently, when I said to you at that stage, however many weeks ago it was, that we had a Canadian, you found some additional information out by being able to contact the guy responsible for the missing persons case in Canada. So perhaps you can just yeah. run through what you did there because that's interesting. Yeah, I did. And, and hey, it just shows the benefit of working closely with police and the police being open and uh, proactive with us. So I rang Shona, my old friend Shona, and said, Shona, we, we may be on something here because we found a six foot five male who's also missing in Canada. And of course, our stock with Toronto missing persons is quite high at the moment. Ian. Mm. And uh, Annie, she said, "Well, leave it with me. I'll try and find out who the investigative, who the investigator is, the main police investigator is on that case." Which she did, and uh, really kindly, she got back to me and had made an introduction. So not only did she send me the information of who's dealing with it, a guy called Joel Epps, but she'd already spoken to Joel and said, "Don't." Don't ignore this guy. Talk to him or to us, which is very nice of her. So I arranged to have a call with Joel Epps, and Joel was extremely helpful. Now, there are things, obviously, that he couldn't divulge. That's the nature of police work. But there were certain things he could. So there was a couple of things he mentioned to me which, which are relevant, and we need to get out there. Firstly, he was a partner in a hot tub business in a place called Guelph, which is about 100 miles away from Toronto. But this hot tub business had got into some kind of financial difficulty. And also, sadly, his mother had died relatively recently, a few weeks before. And it sounds like things just all got a bit too much for him. And he literally disappeared without trace. Now, Obviously, the obvious question to ask was, well, did you ever suspect, Guelph Police, that the partner that he was in, involved with may have been involved with this disappearance? Uh, it's the obvious question. And they were very clear. They said, well, no, we don't think it was a homicide connected to that, to that partner. But he simply disappeared. He's just like Michael Sterling Dean, in that sense, you know, he's not he's not down as a potential homicide. He's literally listed as a missing person. We also knew a few other things about him that he had a birthmark on his leg, and it's quite a big birthmark on his leg. So, so there's a significant identifier. But of course, when I told the Guelph police about the gentleman that had to go land, they were putting these things together just as we put them together. There are very, very few six foot five missing people in the world. There are even fewer who are only 80 kilos because most six foot five people are much bigger. So there mm -hmm. was a lot of interest on their side and that and that conversation is continuing. So so that's the additional information that we uh, that we got from. Oh, there's one other thing I should mention. He used aliases, which is peculiar. So for someone who was relatively young when he went missing, He'd already used other aliases. Jim Hepburn was an alias he used. And that's odd. You, I mean, to my knowledge, you don't have an alias, Ian. 
Uh, I don't have an alias. Or well, Stan uh, Vaccine, I remember. Oh, yeah, I did have an alias once, yeah. Stan Vaccine and Max Vaccine in the vaccines. Yeah, where, when we were in the vaccines, we did have those names. But, but you know, I would, you know, I don't uh, carry on my business as someone else. So, and it suggests someone who, if if you've got a if you've got an alias, they're not normally for for good reasons, are they? In my experience, there's some re- I think some very relevant bits of information that didn't actually leap out at us initially. But when we've done our little bit of digging now, I think it, I think it all fits to support a theory. We were looking for David Manfred Kruger, and then we were looking for somebody Jim Hepburn. Uh, I think this, he's got another alias where Kruger is spelt differently and we did a lot of work hunting around on those. Um, not getting anywhere, not getting where this chap might have gone to. However, Joe, bless her, unearthed a very interesting fact, which I think helps us to put this together and makes him far more likely to be in the frame as the gentleman. Joe, as you know, is hunting around looking for births, deaths, marriages, etc., that might be able to help us. And she came across a embarkation, if that's the right word, notice, or in the in the notice of travel, she found that a Otto and a Krista Kruger had traveled to Toronto from Germany. Bremen, yeah. Yeah, from Bremen. In 1953. And with them was their son, born the 2nd of July, 1950, which is David Manfred Kruger's birthday. But on this embarkation notice, David is not called David. He's called Detlef, which is a German Christian name. Yeah. So it's Detlef Kruger enters Canada with his mother and father in 1953. Pretty certain, therefore, based on one, the Kruger name, based on the exact date of birth, that Detlef Kruger and David Kruger are the same person. Absolutely. And therefore, could easily have reverted to Detlef if, for example, he left Canada and went back to live in Germany. Why would he leave Canada and go back to Germany? when he was only in Germany when he was three, because that might be where all the rest of his family is. Certainly his mother has just recently died in Canada. We're still trying to track down what happened to his dad, Otto. But if his father's dead as well, he's then just on his own with a failed business in Canada and maybe a whole load of family back in Germany. You can see why somebody might just think, right, I'm packing up, I'm going back. Yeah, 100%. And in fact, that reminds me of something that Joel Epps in Guelph told me, the police uh, investigator. They know that he moved to Canada when he was two. When so, he was two, was he? Yeah, and he was two on that documentation. He was two and 10 months. So we're totally certain that, and in fact, I've obviously relayed this back to Canada police, that'll give us another feather in our cap, that David Kruger was really christened Detlef Manfred Kruger. Yeah. Just a, a, a couple of other things on this. So, because I think it is relevant in relation to the gentleman. When they, when they came to Toronto, 
that family was living in a town called Delmenhorst. Yeah. And Delmenhorst, just outside Bremen in Germany. Why is that relevant? Well, it's relevant because that's less than 100 kilometers from essentially where the body is, from Wilhelmshaven. And Germany is a big country. And if they'd come from Frankfurt or from Munich or from Berlin, you'd question that. But they were close. They were close to that coast. So what we're really speculating on here is that a man with a German passport, with a German name, maybe with property already in Germany that his mum and dad left behind. Possibly. With no siblings that we can find in Canada. His mother definitely died. We think his father may have died already as well. Nothing to stay for, except from people chasing him because he's in financial difficulty, decides one day, maybe I'd be better off in Germany. And That's a theory. And because everyone was looking for David Kruger, and now he's, as we know, he uses aliases, he reverts back to Detlef Kruger. No one would have ever spotted him leaving and going back to Germany. Which actually is the name that his German passport would have been in. Correct. It's the easiest name for him to use to travel. So what we've got now is a six foot five man disappearing in very strange circumstances in Canada with connections to the very place in Germany that's closest to where the gentleman's found. We have. We've got to find out what he did for 15 years in Germany that might have led him to be in the sea. But, I mean, there's another life there. There's another life there. And he's just a young chap, you know, because he doesn't graduate. The, the, the most recent photo I've seen on Canada's Missing is his graduation picture in 1977, and he goes missing slightly less than two years after that. He still has all of his life in front of him, if you like, to plot his career, whatever he's going to do. That's a, mm. His mother's died. I just think it's a, it's a perfect time if you are going to start again, to go and start again. Yeah, 100% on that. There's a couple of things I just want to touch on as well. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously... Obviously, in the last few weeks, we've been talking about this lead thing and the fact that if you're in Europe, you are exposed to Australian lead. Now, if this guy had grown up in Canada all his life, then he would not have been exposed to Australian lead and, and therefore he couldn't be the gentleman. But of course, Detlef was in Germany for the first nearly three years of his life. Correct. Plenty of time for Australia led to get into his system. He then, we think, goes back to Germany in... But it's, he's gone missing at the end of the 70s, 1979. So there's another potential 14 or 15 years to be exposed to Australian led. Just as we all were if we were knocking around Europe in the, 19, yep. in the 1980s. So that would explain the presence of Australian lead. So we're getting quite excited about Detlef. Now, just to update listeners, we have got a contact into the German police. We don't really talk to the German police, but we have we have we know someone who does. And we've passed this information on to the German police as well. You'll be pleased to know. Well I think that the information that we send through our contact to the German police does get listened to. 
I know we were quite forceful about this lead isotope case, not exclusively proving an Australian background. And lo and behold, on the Locate website, it's been opened up to be Australian and or North European. So hopefully um, that will get through. Mm. And if anyone's going to try and track a German in Germany, it's the German police. So hopefully they, they may well make some strides to find out if Detlef did make it into Germany and if he did, what he was doing. Um, I think it gives them a whole new line of investigation and, and they can do that far more efficiently than, than we can. I know how much work's been involved in that. And that piece specifically, I think, obviously you've done a ton of work on this, but that little key that Joe found about the the mother and father coming together on undoubtedly that family, coming from Bremen to, to Toronto at exactly the right time with that new name, I think that's really opened things up for everybody, hasn't it? Well, Joe actually should mention as well, because this was a, a clincher, but Joe did find uh, entrance in uh, entry in the electoral uh, records for Otto, Krista and David in 1972. So kind of confirming that Detlef had his name anglicised maybe because he yeah. gone to Canada, yeah. changed to David and was still living with his parents uh, in 1972, uh, described as a student, and we know that he was because she then graduates in 1977. So she found that elect electoral roll entry to confirm the fact the family and that Detlef had changed to David when he was in Canada. And the beauty of Detlef compared to all the other people that are interested in, and obviously I include David Martin in that, we know his height. And we, we know, know he's six foot five. We know he's six foot five and we know he's missing and we know he's got connections to that space. So, hey, watch this space because uh, I think it could about to get really, really interesting. Fingers crossed. Thanks, mate. Appreciate the update as always. And uh, we'll catch up again soon. See you soon, Ken. Cheers, mate. Dada. So that is the story of Detlef Kruger. We know he's missing. We know he's six foot five, and that makes him extremely interesting because it's so rare. And we know he's the right weight. We know he's the right age range. We know that he originates from Germany and from northwest Germany, close to where the gentleman of Heligoland was found. And we know he used aliases. That's odd. But what we don't know is did he ever make it back to Germany? And if he did, when did he make it back to Germany? And exactly what did he do, if he was still alive, between 1979 and 1994? And that's what we've got to work on. But sitting here right now, I think he's the hottest lead yet. And at the very least, with another push, we may solve another of Canada's oldest missing persons cases. But if you're a listener to this podcast in Germany and you want to help, drop me a line, either at our email, thegentlemanofheligoland at gmail.com or via the Facebook page, who was the gentleman of Heligoland. We would really appreciate your help in the work we're about to do. So we've got plenty to be getting on with, both in terms of Detlef 
but also in terms of David Martin. We haven't forgotten about him. And as soon as we find out more, you'll be the first to know. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland is a copyrighted GSE Media production, written and narrated by Ian Mackay and Ken Davis, and produced by myself, Ken Davis. <laughs>